Goody camp blood, ain't ya? Thank you for joining us at Now Playing for our Friday the 13th retrospective. With all the excitement of the Michael Bay remake of Friday the 13th coming out on Friday, February 13th, we here at Now Playing will be looking back at all of the installments in the Friday the 13th movie franchise, from Crystal Lake to New York to Deep Space. Never come back again. It's got a death curse. Just a quick warning up front. These are R-rated movies that barely made it past the MPAA, and our discussions of the movies are just as R-rated. And also, these reviews will contain major spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're talking about Friday the 13th, the remake, the reboot, the something. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stewart in L.A. And this is Arnie, and I'm taking Manhattan. <laughs> Arnie comes to us via Manhattan today. To get closer to the heart of Jason. Yes, a true fan. You had to go, you had to go and re-emulate Jason to fully appreciate the remake. Later on, I'm going to kill some heroin addicted rapists and then punch somebody's head off a roof. But just be sure you don't go down in the sewer before midnight because you don't want that toxic Oh, toxic waste, toxic waste. (laughs) (laughs) Today we all saw the remake of Friday the 13th that came out on Friday the 13th here in 2009, the Michael Bay remake. And we all saw, I believe, a similar movie. I just want to say up front that I was lucky enough to see the movie with an infant a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old, a family, a single father with an infant. It was amazing to me how people saw this preview, people saw these commercials, and said, this is a great family movie for a Friday night. This is perfect. Uh, Unbelievably, though, everyone in the theater was good. No one was really yelling or crying or anything. Uh, They were somewhat getting into the movie, but I just, for the life of me, can't understand why you would bring a five-year-old to see Friday the 13th. But there you go. Yay, video games for desensitizing youth to violence. The family that slays together stays together. (laughs) You know, I had tickets to go see this at a midnight screening and then probably fell asleep, um, only to wake up in the middle of the night with heartburn. And I'm just like, this is doubly painful. My, My Friday the 13th is already starting out with bad luck because I missed my show and I'm in excruciating pain. And I unfortunately used that excuse to leave work early and then catch a matinee with, like, old people, like grannies and, like, single scary guys in trench coats. Like, not too many people in this theater. Just one gentleman in particular uh, was just sort of giggling anytime Jason was on the screen or, or the sound came on. I, I would just hear in the back of the theater this, <laughs> <laughs> this, this was my audience. No children, though. God, I paid for that movie twice. Awesome. <laughs> At premium prices. It was $13 for the midnight show, and I didn't even go. My audience was made up of a bunch of 20-somethings who I think were skipping work, and right here in Manhattan. And I got to say, their reaction was primarily to not pay attention unless either tits or blood was on the screen, which was considerable time. And then at the end, some of them actively booed while a few others applauded. I would like to just get our impressions before we discuss the details. What did you think of this movie? Because I tried so hard to like this movie. After 
all of the anticipation and buildup that the three of us have given this movie, I wanted a nice ending. And man, it sucked. I have to say I was a little disappointed with this movie. I really liked a few things in it. I actually had some moments I enjoyed it. But overall, I, for lack of a better word, found it boring. There was such an opportunity here to do something more. And surprisingly, they did the same thing, but not as well. I really felt that all the progress they had made with the last two ones we saw, even the last three we saw, for this formula, they didn't really capitalize on the opportunities of a modern filmmaking techniques and, and just a better way to tell this story. It felt sort of rote, boring. I totally agree. And that's, uh, I think, a disservice to the reboot. I've really been getting into this reboot thing. I mean, I don't totally like the remakes or just redoing something for no purpose, but when I've seen the James Bond or the Batman films that they've done and seen how they've taken sort of the formula and then infused it with new stuff, with realism, which made you treat these kind of campy characters with a new level of seriousness, and more importantly, more crucially here, logic. <laughs> I cannot say that that, is, that formula, that infusion, is to be found with the return of Jason Voorhees. In fact, I think it is a very poor entry into the saga, a real disappointment. After riding this wave and on, on all the ups and downs of the whole series, to go out on this note, particularly after Freddy versus Jason, is a real shame. Yeah, I was watching this, and I kind of wondered if it was truly going to be a out-and-out, started-all-over reboot-slash-remake. Because if you saw the same people's reboot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, that was so different from the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre that it almost could have just been another installment where they just don't pay attention to the chronology. And if you look at the Friday the 13th series, well, Part 9 didn't really pay attention to the chronology. We don't know how Jason escaped the toxic waste. Part 10 didn't pay attention to the chronology. It's way off in the future. So many of these don't pay attention to what's come before. But, you know, I wondered if it would be that different or not. And what we got here, though, was a mixture of remake and redo and retcon, and it was like it was all put into a blender, and what came out just didn't taste very good. I'm going to use a really weird analogy, and I might throw some people off by this one. Now and then on Broadway, they have revivals. They take an old musical or an old play and bring it back 10 years, 20 years later. And when they usually bring them back, they have a vision. They have an idea of how to do it differently. Very rarely do they do the exact same show over again and just say, here it is, new cast, let's love it. And why am I bringing this analogy up? Well, if you're going to reboot something or you're going to restart something, how about a vision? How about an idea of why? Saying just for the sake of doing it, just to, we have these characters, let's do it, it doesn't make any sense. And so why on earth remake this movie but just redo the same kinds of stuff and then the things you change to make it a more modern movie doesn't make any sense? Why change Jason's M.O. completely, for example? So why call it a Friday the 13th movie unless it has the spirit of the original but telling it in a new and modern way. And I think they missed the boat completely. I think your analogy of James Bond, Stewart is a perfect example of going back to the beginning, finding out what worked, but putting a modern spin on it to get modern audiences and telling the same story of the same spy guy, but differently for today's audiences. They missed the boat. 
I don't think I could agree with you more, Brock, because this wasn't Jason. We've seen 11 Jason movies. This killer could have been anybody. And it, just because he wore a hockey mask, he was Jason. The M.O. was different. The whole thing was different. And, I mean, really, what made this Jason? What made this a Friday the 13th movie other than the title? I don't know. And I'm not saying different is not good sometimes. Different sometimes is great. Why not have a different kind of Friday the 13th movie? But you have to have a Friday the 13th movie. You have to have Jason Voorhees present. And a Jason Voorhees by name does not a Jason Voorhees make. <laughs> no, it's weird. And they, it, what's weird is that they started off right in the climax of the first film. It's not like they put it somewhere different. They're reminding you, actively reminding you, that this is connected to what we've seen before. And the first scene is this sort of exposition-heavy scene with Mrs. Voorhees cornering the girl that probably is Alice, she's never named, but and saying, Jason is my son, and you let him drown, and I'm going to kill you, and she beheads him, and we all know where this is coming from. And yet, almost instantly, something felt terribly off about that moment, because Alice beheads Mrs. Voorhees, runs away, and Jason steps out of the foliage as a, a new little special needs child to pick up a machete, and I'm going, I thought he drowned. Well, I think this goes back to one of the possible explanations for what the hell was going on in the previous movies. We've debated back and forth, how was Jason a little boy in part one? How was he a man in part two? How did he live? And I think the end explanation, and I think this movie went with it, is that Jason didn't drown. Jason was thought to have drowned. And, you know, being the mentally challenged boy that he was, instead of running back to mama, went off to the woods. He's, you know, really not there in the head. And, you know, in the original Friday the 13th in 1980, when we see the boy jump out of the lake, that was intended as a dream sequence. And so it's not like he aged 20 years overnight. He was always this man living out in the woods. Now, what this reboot, remake, redo change is that I think when we see Pamela Voorhees and pseudo Alice in the beginning, it's days after Jason drowned. Whereas in the original, it's 20 years after Jason drowned and Pamela Voorhees is still out there. And like Stuart said, what happened to Pamela Voorhees in the 60s, you know? And in this case, I think it's Jason Drown and Pamela Voorhees is immediately taking her vengeance. And that pseudo Alice was one of the active counselors at the time of Jason's drowning. So I think that's what we're meant to infer is that Jason supposedly drowned in 1980, and then Mrs. Voorhees killed the counselors at that time. One survived, killed Mrs. Voorhees, but oops, Jason's still alive and saw the whole thing and now has Mommy's machete. Boy, it would have been nice if they had actually, uh, you know, I don't know, shown us that um, <laughs> rather than just a shot of some child's feet. But, um, you know, I'll go with that because I've got nothing else to go with. I would agree with that as well. They kind of set it around the campfire. Jason didn't drown. Right. But my only issue with this whole timeline thing is that when they are around the campfire, those kids go up 30 years later to camp out in the woods of Crystal Lake. And that's in the opening scene. And a couple of the kids find Jason's home. And in Jason's home is a child's bed with his name on it and all these children's toys. My problem with the timeline thing is all the toys and the furniture, everything in there is from the 60s and the 70s, not the 80s, not the 90s. But why would Jason have 
all these toys and all these trinkets and all these kinds of television sets, for example, as well, from the 60s, from the 70s, if he died in 1980, wouldn't he have more things from, you know, late 70s instead of having all this stuff being from the 60s? I thought the timeline was really weird. It wouldn't be scary if he had moldy Smurfs and He-Man, would it? <laughs> he could have had a Star Wars toy. Yes, he should have had Star Wars, because somebody who made this film was obsessed with Star Wars. Apparently. One of the characters was wearing a Star Wars ad-ad shirt. One of the characters was named Chewie. I think we needed a vintage Luke Skywalker in Jason's bedroom. Exactly. Recreate the scene from E.T. <laughs> funny would that be? <laughs> Um, um, I thought that was really cool, that opening scene with the dorky kid, the fifth wheel, if you will, with the two couples, are on the fire, telling the story of Jason. That whole opening murdering sequence would have been great for another movie. Well, there's another problem that I have almost instantaneously. After I accept the premise that Jason didn't drown, but nobody went looking in the lake for him, and everyone was just like, oh, we know he didn't drown, but no one's going to actually look for this missing special needs kids in the woods. (laughs) All right. We're just going to abandon the the campground and let him do his thing there for for years unnoticed. All right. And they seem to know about it. Yes, kids know that he's there, they, and they know that there are pot fields that are in this area. And, and two of the kids in particular, Wade and Richie, I think his name is, are really excited about making all of their millions on selling Jason's pot. My question to you is Isn't it Jason's pot? Is Jason growing this to tempt children to come there so he could kill them, or is he just a weed head? Is he just like the biggest Cheech and Chong addict? And if he is, how does he have the energy to kill? How do they know that there's this weed there? And more importantly, once they find the weed, later on, a townie gets killed because the townie has some weed, and Jason's M.O. is not to kill the townies, so the only reason he'd kill this townie is for the weed, so it must be that he's bogarting Jason's stash. Yes. Well, actually, wait a second. I think he killed the townie in the attic, in the junk attic, because he was there to lift the kerosene. They planted in the story that someone keeps stealing the old man's kerosene. So the guy caught Jason upstairs. That's why Jason killed that townie. That's how I understood that scene. Why did Jason need I thought it was about the weed. Jason's up there for some reason at all in that giant junk attic. And maybe Jason's up there stealing stuff to put back in his antiquated toy room back at his old house. But... What what I understood it to be was that this guy heard Jason upstairs, and Jason can't let anyone know he's there, so boom. But you're right. He had the weed, and he was hitting on a mannequin. So, you know, he was sexually active <laughs> with a mannequin, and he had the weed. So he, he fit the M.O. of, oh, he must die in Jason Lane. All of the above reasons are reasons why we're rooting for Jason to kill this guy. But we are getting ahead of ourselves here. Bit, Basically, bit. I just wanted to bring up the fact that I don't understand – if Jason's a pothead or Jason wants to kill pothead. <laughs> Let me tell you, this is the first of many parallels between this movie and the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because in the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you've got five teenagers who are driving through Texas, coming back from Mexico with a stash full of high-grade weed that they're going to use to make a ton of money, and then they break down and encounter Leatherface. Here you got five teenagers, again, out getting weed. Really, honestly, there are so many parallels between this movie and the remake of Texas Chainsaw that I think it's lazy. This was almost a Friday the 13th machete massacre. 
I totally and, agree. And, and it just, should be pointed out, and fingers should be pointed at Marcus Nispel, who directed both films. He is literally just stealing from himself after stealing from classic horror movies. And then these five teens who are out there for weed, they stumble across Jason. Jason starts picking them off, and immediately something felt wrong to me. Because Jason takes one of the girls, puts her in a sleeping bag, and roasts her like a marshmallow over the fire while setting a bear trap, which I might want to say is, was also something done in one of the Texas Chainsaw remakes, the sequel, the Texas Chainsaw, the beginning. But he takes a bear trap and traps one of the other people. This is not the Jason we knew. Jason was a murderer, but Jason wasn't a torturer. No. No. And if we're expected to take this premise as a realistic one, and I think that there is a concerted effort to make this a scary Friday the 13th and a more plausible Friday the 13th, at least I think it was, um, they're, they're really tripping themselves up right from the get-go. These things are not making sense, and it's really taking you out of the movie. I couldn't get into it from the get-go. I have nothing to add. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> I just didn't get it. I thought it was kind of a cool death to see the woman over the fire. If you're going for cool, well, that ranks up there with the road flare in the mouth, but it didn't work. I don't think she roasted long enough to actually die either. It was very weird. When she popped out of the bag, She just had, her hair was singed, but her face was fine. I, I was very confused. Well, actually, I think it's a flame-retardant bag, wasn't it? So she was roasting inside. She was, like, boiling, I thought. That's what I took from it, because sleeping bags are typically flame-retardant. Hmm. Maybe I'm just helping out the film a little bit. I thought the I thought the sequence <laughs> was was don't, fun. No, don't let them off the hook here. This don't make sense. But I but I did enjoy the sequence. But again, didn't really feel Friday the Thirteenth ish. But also because Jason moves like lightning in this thing. And while in the remake of what was it, Dawn of the Dead, the zombies move faster and people like that. Again, we've talked about this in other previous podcasts we've recorded for the series. I like the fact that Jason takes his time and, you know, just keeps coming after you. Here, he was, like, really, really fast, and it, it didn't seem right. But I guess of all the things that critique, that's one thing, I guess, that I really shouldn't mind too much. But it bothered me in the first scene especially. Now, I was still going with the movie at this point, though. Even though that death, I thought, didn't fit his M.O. from the previous 11 movies, it was a reboot, so I was able to go with it. I actually liked the kids and the scene. I thought there was some good parallels to some of the old ones where you've got the two teens going in and seeing Jason's dilapidated cabin in the woods and the scene of the two teens fucking in the tent and constantly being interrupted by Jason was actually funny to me. I thought it was really clever that, you know, they keep hearing the sounds and thinking it's their friend Wade being a voyeur and watching them fuck in the tent. And it turns out it's Jason. And I thought that was pretty well done. It was Definitely retro. It felt like Friday the 13th Part 2 through 4 type stuff, but I went with it, and I kind of enjoyed that during this. I guess it's the prologue, because all of this is happening before the title of the movie on the screen. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't really like it, but uh, and I was really confused. You mentioned them being disrupted in the tent. What exactly was the noise that kept distracting them? I didn't hear she had to at all. really not be into the sex to be like, oh, I heard a twig somewhere far off. Make him stop, huh? <laughs> I mean, 
I don't, I don't, you know, if they wanted a, a, a woodland getaway, I don't know why Wade and Richie didn't just go out to get their weed and why they brought the chicks. Like, if he wanted to have this kind of party, it should have, he either should not have brought Wade or he shouldn't have brought the girls. But it, it was a, it was a mixing business with pleasure, I guess. <laughs> well, the only thing that I would add, and spoiler alert, we think that all five of these campers are dead, but it turns out that one of them, Whitney, is not, and we find out later in the movie. But they fooled me into thinking all of them were dead. Oh, they didn't fool me at all. I knew instantly no. because they dropped the line with the locket. Yeah, so uh, it didn't fool me at all, and I knew exactly what was coming, and I was right. So the crux of the movie is beyond that. We pick up the, the six weeks later when a bunch of kids are going to a cabin a wonderful cabin on Crystal Lake. So we're no longer in the camp, which was abandoned anyway. But six or seven teens are going up to this rich kid's cabin. And there's another kid looking for his sister, which is a callback to part five, four? Four. 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 And that was a nice touch. It made sense this time, did it not? And it was nice to see that. So we have a kid looking for his sister who died six weeks earlier in that first massacre we saw. And we have a bunch of other kids who are up for a, a weekend of debauchery on the lake. And I thought that as a setup worked for me. That was okay. Here we go. It's exactly like we had in four kids going to party on the lake and the guy looking for his sister. I agree. The only thing that bothered me about this is these people are supposed to be friends going up to the lake. These people would never hang out together, ever. No. I, I, I was having that problem instantly. They work very, 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 very hard for us to dislike Trent, who is his father owns the uh, this palatial cabin or whatever it is, this summer home. And he is always throwing his money around, and he's just horrible to all of his friends. He makes one of them ride in the trunk, like squeezed up, and he won't pay for his chips, and he makes fun of the, the fact that he buys condoms. He's just, you know, douche. He has douche hair, even. He's just a total jerk. You used my and, exact word. I said to Marjorie, he, he's not evil. He's just douchey. Yes. Why would he not just bring the girls to his father's cabin? Because he has absolutely no fun during any of this. Don't touch the table. Don't touch my boat. Don't do this. Don't do that. He only is there to get laid. And I truly do not know why he brought any of those guys. The whole time I was watching Trent, I could not stop thinking of Tom Cruise. This guy reeked <laughs> of Tom Cruise in his looks, in his smile in his arrogance, and I'm talking Tom Cruise, the characters that Tom Cruise plays on screen, I'm not talking about anything outside of that. I'm talking Tom Cruise, 1980s persona. Trent would certainly not be friends with the boys, but I think the boys were there because the girls brought, at least the Matthew McConaughey guy was brought because the girl was friends with the other girl, etc., etc. But why Aaron Yu was there, I don't know. Yeah, maybe the girls insisted on bringing uh, other boys along so that it wasn't such an obvious weekend of sex and debauchery. But uh, I don't know why this this fun-hating rich boy would, would ever consent to this weekend when he's so anal about all of his father's things and just truly doesn't like his friends. The other thing was, I didn't realize until about halfway through the movie, there were two blonde chicks. <laughs> There was just one blonde chick and one brunette in this trip. And then all of a sudden, there's two blonde chicks. One's out at the boat, and the other's still in the cab. And I was like, oh, there's two. I was completely confused. And one of them is Wyla Ford. Remember Wyla Ford, the one-hit wonder uh, British pop star? Nope. No. Neither. 
Yeah, I had to look her up, but uh, she had a she had the smallest of hits about six or seven years ago called fittingly enough, I want to be bad. Which girl was that? She's the one that ends up with the Matthew McConaughey look-alike in the lake. Aha. Uh-huh. Now let me ask something here. Trent is up there, and there's the three girls, one of whom is the brunette. Is Trent dating the brunette? Are they boyfriend girlfriend? Nope. He wants her. Of all the three girls, he wants to lay her. That's what I got. He's very possessive of her. It's not uh-huh. entirely clear that she has the hots for Clay, the uh, disaffected uh, soap opera star-looking guy uh, who's looking for his sister. is very irksome to him. He makes a, a real stink about the fact that she wants to help Clay find his sister. And this kind of harkened back to part seven to me, because it's like part seven, you've got the mentally unstable girl coming in and there's the party house. Here I'm like, there's a guy looking for his dead sister. Why is this a chance for a girl to get her freak on? <laughs> yeah. And, and what hope does Clay have that she's going to give him any leads? True. All right, so can we get into the kills? <laughs> From here on in, it's a pretty standard plot, guys. It's a Friday the 13th movie. Why are we talking about characters? Well, yeah, the one thing that I'd like to talk about about the story is Jason starts offing them, not surprisingly, and we can talk about how in a moment, but when it comes down to the end and there's only a few survivors, we find out that Whitney, the sister, is alive and been chained up this whole time. Now, first of all, she looks damn good for having been held captive by Jason for six weeks. She is not famished. She is not pale. She is not dirty. Her hair is not out of place. She's eating. <laughs> what what was she eating? Rang. I do want to know that. I want yes. to know what she was eating or what any of these people are eating. What does Jason eat? No one ever eats in this movie, and there's no food around. I mean, there's nothing growing in the forest or anything. I, I'm, I was marveled at that. But, yes, she's chained up in an underground labyrinth that now exists below the campgrounds. Jason, the mentally challenged child, not only has thrived in the woods, but opened his own torture camp beneath the old camp. (laughs) I don't know. You know what I thought of that entire sequence was Silence of the Lambs. Yes. You know what I thought of? I thought of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake because there's a whole sequence in a labyrinth of tunnels underneath the house where they chain up their people. And, you know, you asked a moment ago, Stuart, what does Jason eat? Well, I think, and you know what, There's in the DVD that's going to come out of this movie, there's 15 minutes of inserted footage. They said there's a whole subplot. I'm watching this movie. I think the subplot must be that Jason's a cannibal because Jason keeps taking these bodies back to his house. Why is he taking them back to his house? I think he's eating them. It's never said. But I don't understand why he's collecting bodies. You know, you don't see them in the house. And, again, that's another thing from Texas Chainsaw is Leatherface is a cannibal. I think it was Jason the cannibal. Yeah, but Whitney is alive, and Whitney is alive because – let's talk about this one. I mean, (laughs) ugh. There is a locket that Jason has of his mother and another woman or his mother on the other side of it. No, him. Jason. It was Jason. Trashed himself out. Oh, okay. yeah. It was, so it was Jason, Jason on one side of the locket and the mother on the other. Yeah. And the mother is meant to look like Whitney. So I, of course, whenever this thing comes up, always think, okay, we're going to find out that some way in the family connection, family tree somewhere there – 
Whitney and Jason are related, right? And they even work into the early in the movie that Whitney is very devoted to her mother and that her mother is dying of cancer and that it was such a big step for her to not be there for her mother and come away to go camping and backpacking. And I'm waiting for it, waiting for it, waiting for it. And guess what? No reason at all why Whitney looks like the mother. A complete and total red herring. Actually, actually, I thought they used it because it... No, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. I mean, I could try. I really can. But um, as soon as they tried... Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Brock. Well, you know what? I'm not going to use the spin machine. I... They dropped the locket. They dropped that she looks like the mother. I'm like, oh, she's going to live. I knew instantly she was going to live. Why Jason takes a captive for that weak mother angle, fine. But how it plays out is completely useless, and you really didn't need her to be alive at the end of this movie. So it's just a BS thing to do. You're right. It really is. And that Jason is even in love with his mother. Well, guess where he builds the shrine to his mother's head? Above the toilet. I mean, I kid you not. When they go into the house, they look at a hole above the toilet, and that's where he keeps his mother. I thought it was a bathtub. Well, the bathtub was there, too. But, I mean, is that reverence? I ask you, praying to the porcelain (laughs) god. I don't know. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. All right, so let's talk about some killing, shall we? Because we're all here for the kills, folks. We're not here for the wonderful psychological mess that is Jason's mind. We are here for the kills. And, unfortunately, we had some fantastic kills for any other movie than a Friday the 13th movie. Although, I have to say, some of the kills were quite fun. And the Jason-type kills that we've seen in the past 11 movies were quite fun. There were no highlights for me. (laughs) I'm trying to think of a kill that I responded to, and I actually, Brock, I gotta tell you, you're excited about the kills, but I felt a lot of them were bloodless and sort of half-assed. I mean, I really felt like... Certainly, in a post-Saw world, we're used to seeing extreme violence. And I thought, if anything, this movie would err on the side of being gratuitous. Most of these kills are, are PG-13 level. I mean, there's, there's very little blood. And um, his M.O. is all over the place. Like we mentioned the, the sleeping bag on fire, his most bizarre trick. But there's also, like, he shoots an arrow. Out of the uh, that was a little out of the blue. Yeah, the guy's just driving around on a boat, and suddenly he's got an arrow in his head. Ah! And then he drives the boat into the girl in the water, which was actually... Let me tell you, there was a good and a bad with that kill. The good was it was one of the first kills that was unexpected, you know? Mm -hmm. It actually puts you in the moment you don't expect an arrow to just come through his head at that moment. But this, again, now you have Jason the hunter, the bow hunter... We've seen him use a harpoon gun, and I guess I'm down with harpoon gun now because it's been established, but this mentally challenged boy is a super hunter. Right. It's starting to really feel like deliverance now. (laughs) The reason I'm high on this boat kill, this is really the one I wanted to get into first, was not only is Jason a crack shot with one eye through a mask, mind you. The man's (laughs) a crack shot. He can hit a speedboat. And the guy driving a speedboat at, what, 40 miles an hour on a lake? He can hit him with an arrow. Rambo couldn't hit the guy in the head with an arrow from that way. Come on! You know, boats are measured in knots, not miles. Oh, my Lord. Okay, sorry, Mr. Nautical. I didn't realize. <laughs> was, was the driver on the port side or the starboard? Okay, so, look. <laughs> so, look, anyway, the point is that Jason has an most amazing shot, and you're absolutely right. It was amazingly unexpected but i as soon as that arrow went through his head i'm like 
you've got to be fucking kidding me. Because this is not Jason. And that's the reason I want to talk about the kills was, although I had a lot of fun with some of these kills, I just didn't think they were Jason. Now, after the boat hits the blonde girl in the water, she hides underneath the dock, and her death was sort of Jason-like. It was Jason-like. It it was predictable. I I saw it coming, you know, instantly. I mean, indeed, if you see a mass murderer from, uh, you know, the side of a lake, why you would swim underneath a dock that he's standing on, I do not know. But she's there. He walks over her. He's walking away. She thinks she gets away with it. And then, shoink, uh, like a knife through a melon, he he puts the knife through the uh, planks and kind of pulls her up for a little second and then lets her drop. What I thought was actually it seemed very fake because the machete punctured the skull with very little blood and immediately her eyes rolled up and she looked like a dummy. I would think that a human stabbed in the brain would be spasmodic and twitching. It seemed really fake for something in the 21st century. My problem wasn't with the effect itself. It was with the logic of her actually being underneath the dock. That just why she would swim there for safety, I don't understand that. Right. Well, I get it. You know, out of sight, and hopefully he wouldn't see her. But, of course, he's going to. I mean, I'd written her down on my kill list before that ever happened. I mean, she was not going to get out of that. So beyond that kill on the boat, which I think was one of my favorites of the movie, the rest of the kills were pretty unspectacular in their surprise factors, etc. after the first opening scene, as we talked about. But as once he starts picking off those kids at the cabin, you know, there wasn't much there for me to enjoy the way he killed them each time was so different and weird. I'm not an expert on murderers. I'm not an expert on, on the mind of these kinds of people. But I am an, I think I can say I know my Jason Voorhees, and I really was hoping he used the machete a little more. He kept on pulling it out, and you hear the shing, but he didn't actually use it all that much to actually kill the people. He put people on antlers. He, he, <laughs> I mean, what, what else? Threw a hatchet. Throw hatchets. Yes. Which was a horribly oh. disturbing scene with the kid begging for his friends to come out and get him. But Especially I'll, since that was actually one of the likable characters. Yeah. I mean, I liked Aaron Yu in this movie. I'm becoming an Aaron Yu fan. He was in 21. He was in Suburbia. He always plays the buoyant, fun guy. And he was like the life of the party in this movie. He had so much fun. He knew what he was there to do, and he did it. He was great. So his death in the tool shed was fun for me because you were wondering how this guy is going to get it. And he was having so much fun. It's like he was improvising in that cabin full of tools and stuff. Even if he wasn't, it just seemed so natural. So when Jason killed him, it was almost a shame. It was kind of like Crispin Glover dying in part four. That's a shame. We liked that character the most. You know, if he wasn't getting it in a clever way, at least I was interested in seeing how he was going to get it, you know? I don't think necessarily that having these variety of kill methods is outside of what Friday the 13th normally does. If we look at Jason's M.O. in general, while he's so associated with that machete, the way Freddy's associated with the glove, neither one of them actually use that as a means of death very much because that would get boring. Jason uses the road flare. Jason uses the harpoon gun. Jason uses the spear through the bed. Jason uses the machete. It's always a different type of death, because if it was just impalation after impalation, machete after machete, well, the bloodlust would get boring. It would be, you know, like watching the same porn scene again and again. We want to see it from new, various, wild angles. All right, I will give you that. We did see a lot of various kills over the course of the 10, 11 movies we watched, but then why do I always associate Jason with the machete. It's because of all 11 films, the weapon of choice would be machete, right? He, Sure, he uses different things, but 
here he killed, what, one person, two people with the machete? That's it? And that just didn't seem real to me. It seemed weird. It didn't seem Jason enough. I think if you go back to parts two, three, and four, and so on, there are very few machete kills. It's associated with it more, I'd say, due to marketing than anything else. And you've got funny lines referencing it, but as far as the actual kills go, with the exception of part 10 when he takes out the entire army with one rusty machete, the super machete of Perseus, I think that it's not that big of a kill weapon for him because it would just get boring. You, you see it on the posters. You see it on the toys. You think of Freddy in the glove. You think of Jason in the machete. It's meta-knowledge that's doing it to you. And they even use it in this movie. At the beginning of the movie, Jason picks up a machete. It's what's associated with him. But if you go back and look at all the kills that we've seen, far fewer than a quarter are machete deaths. Well, I think, Brock, maybe what you're responding to is certainly what I did was that it wasn't Jason enough, the the character itself. And you might be putting it on the death because the death didn't feel right. But I would argue it's the motivation behind the death. Like, I don't know what this guy is about. I thought I understood Jason to be a character who's about getting vengeance for his dead mother. And he sees every camp counselor as the embodiment of uh, the person that let him drown or, you know, beheaded his mother. And in here, because they went with this realistic, he's not really a zombie take, that he's both mentally challenged and capable of building underground labyrinths of torture, <laughs> I, I just really, I didn't understand what he was supposed to be, what made him tick, you know. I also didn't understand why he didn't get caught. I mean, if four kids go missing and the cops don't go look at the campground and find all of this, I mean, they should be fired, not to mention the DEA with all the marijuana fields. I mean, this operation should not be allowed to go on very long. That it has to come down to doofus clay, you know, motorcycle guy going door to door. You know what? I have a theory, too. As he was doing that, one of the people he stops by and sees is this old lady who's in on it. She knows that there is a Jason and like you're going to make him mad and don't rile him and don't go looking for him and all of this. Do you think that maybe one of the parts of the subplot that got cut out is that the town is in on Jason and that they allow him to do this? I'm so glad you said that. Can I once again say Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Because in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot, it's the entire town of nuts. Whereas you think it's just Leatherface and you find out it's the crazy lady in the glasses. The lady in the glasses in this movie was almost exactly like one of the ladies from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think, yeah. Is the town folk in on it? Is that what was cut? Because really, you'd think at some point they'd stop him from doing this. Yes. That they didn't know about it, that they knew kids were missing and never found where they obviously would, the bodies are being taken. It begs the question, and particularly the sheriff character, that he pops up and is dissuading the uh, main character from even looking for answers there, made me think, aha, this guy is covering up something. And then it doesn't really pan out. So when we see the cop guy, I completely agree with you. I thought the cop was in on it. I thought the cop was working with Jason. When the cop comes up to the door and dies, I was completely surprised i thought he was gonna let jason in the freaking front door they were seeming to lead us that road so if you caught it and arnie caught it and i caught it that must be what they were cutting out from this movie 
15 minutes is a lot of time in a movie, so maybe they're cutting out a cannibal plot and a conspiracy plot. But totally, <laughs> totally that cop guy I thought was completely in on it. And maybe the cop wasn't pushing it too far. You mentioned the Texas Chainsaw, Arnie. You're absolutely right. It's the same director. It's the same feel. It's the same flavor. And, and I think maybe even they stopped themselves when they realized, oh, we're going to make another cop in on it. We can't do that one again. But by not doing it, it makes it feel even more weird. I don't know. You were talking about the deaths. One thing that kept hitting me when they were killing these characters, I didn't give a shit. And what should make a horror movie scary, and what each of the previous movies did successfully, is kill a couple of sympathetic characters to a point. Here, they were just killing the nasty characters in the comic relief, with the single exception of the brunette that helps out Clay. Yeah, when she died, I was really surprised because it was so late in the movie that I thought the three of them were going to survive, the sister, brother, and her. And when they killed her, I actually felt bad for her. She did nothing to deserve that death. Nothing. I don't remember her getting naked. I don't remember her smoking pot. I don't remember her doing anything but having bad taste in men. I was just about to say, she went there with Trent, and that is reason enough for her to die. <laughs> but she was so nice. Cockies. And how did she get it, guys? Think about where that knife came through her body. She got it in the hoo-hoo. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. I didn't realize that, but yeah. Yeah, and that's... Other than her, she is the only sympathetic character to die in this movie. And one of the things that I loved about the Texas Chainsaw remake is that you actually get to know these five characters, and when some of them die, it's a little bit wrenching, and it's these long, drawn-out deaths and I was kind of hoping for something a little bit more horrifying in this movie, given that it was from the same person. I, the, the parts that they aped of the Texas Chainsaw remake were the bad parts. You are much kinder to that remake than I am. I just, for the record, would like to state that I like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I do not like the Platinum Dunes remake. And the, Platinum Dunes is not winning me over with what they've done with this movie and Texas Chainsaw, and now they're going to do Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, boy. I wish they would leave Let's it alone. Let's not forget Amityville. I really wish that they would leave these series alone because they don't hide the fact that they're just cashing in. I don't mind that they're cashing in. Everybody cashes in these days. Go ahead. Go for it. Redo it because you want to make money. That's fine. But don't make me feel like you're just turning me upside down and shaking me down for change. That's how this movie made me feel. It was like, oh, you just want to steal my money. You just want to mug me. You don't want to entertain me. You don't want to remind me about what I like about this series. You just want to literally hit me upside the head and take my wallet. And that's what they did. You know something? I think they wanted to remind you what you liked in the series, but I don't think they know. I don't think they get it. I don't think they see why Friday the 13th was a hit, because any part of this movie was not good Friday the 13th. I think they may have gotten Texas Chainsaw, and they had some success with Texas Chainsaw, and so they keep going back to the well. What can we remake next? How can we do capture lightning in a bottle twice? But they don't get it. And I don't think they have a love for the material. And yeah, they're shaking us down for our pennies, but they may be trying to give us what we want, but they don't get it. They don't know what we want. So I'm going to ask you guys both, do you recommend the remake of Friday the 13th? Stuart. <sighs> not only do I not recommend it, I recommend anyone that's ever enjoyed this series to avoid it. I feel like it's falling on deaf ears. Anyone listening to this podcast, anyone that's seen the originals, is probably not going to be able to resist it. 
but they should. They really should, because this is a complete robbery. It's got no inspiration, and that is what's sorely missing here. It's not that they do so many things over again. It's not that Jason is different, or I have to deal with the fact that he's not the same character that I used to like. It's that there is no inspiration to this at all. It feels like a cheat. Arnie? Stay away from this movie. It really is one of the bad ones. And the thing is, because they're trying to remake what they've done before, instead of just being a bad sequel, it borders on desecration. It makes no sense. It hurt my head. It left me asking what the fuck so often and was so unfulfilling. It was as unfulfilling as the popcorn you eat during it. This movie I was not the worst of the series, but it certainly was the one that least gave me what I wanted. And this includes, you know, part nine, where we had the argument of, is it Friday the 13th enough? Well, this movie gave me none of what I wanted out of it. There was no fun here, with the exception of that performer you mentioned who played the Chewy character. And I also like the African-American guy. I thought they were kind of amusing on screen, but whatever. That's not why I'm here. I'm not here to see, you know, Harold and Kumar go to Crystal Lake. <laughs> I'm here to see Jason and... It didn't give it to me. Run from this movie. Do not reward the makers with your money. Don't do it. So you don't recommend it? (laughs) (laughs) You mightn't be saying that. All right. So I do not recommend this movie either. And regardless of all the things they brought back for us to try to remember and all the new stuff they put into this, to try to get us excited about launching a new franchise. The only thing they made me do was look at my watch. It was boring and just a ripoff. So please don't see this movie, and we'll see how it does at the box office this weekend. Opening up on a Friday the 13th, opening up in the middle of a month where nothing remarkable is out, I don't see this movie not making money this weekend. We'll see if it has any legs, but... It's going to do wonderfully, but you know what? They don't even give us the music. They they harken back to it twice with that mask, but no, 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 it's just no. Yeah, it's the upside of all of this is that, yes, they've gone for such a temporary fix that, yes, they're going to get all the money up front, but in three years, no one, absolutely no one will remember that they saw it, that they liked it. We will have no aftertaste whatsoever. People will remember the originals. They will not remember this movie. So thank you for joining us, and this is not the last episode. We are going to have one more episode of this retrospective series where we talk about the series the as a whole. The sequel to the remake? <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a remake of the reboot of our retrospective series. I think we need to talk about the Nintendo game as well. <laughs> well, all that and more in the 13th episode of Now Playing's Friday the 13th Retrospective. Thanks, guys, for joining us. See you later. Thank you. And we'll talk to you all real soon. Thank you for listening to our Friday the 13th Retrospective. We will be reviewing two Friday the 13th episodes each week, up to the release of the new movie in February. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to get the latest episodes. If you did. If you did. If you did. If you did.
Now playing is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.